0: This is Generation Justice, broadcasting from the University of New Mexico, 89.9 KUNM and KUNM.org. I'm your host, Maya Quinones.
1: And I'm your co-host, Zach Milliken. Generation Justice is a multimedia project that trains youth to create media that inspires social change.
0: Tonight, we bring you a view of international issues, specifically food sovereignty in occupied Palestine, and special programs that help to bring healing to the children of Syria.
1: First, we will talk with longtime SWAP member Rodrigo Rodriguez, who recently returned to New Mexico after traveling to Palestine as part of the Grassroots International Travel for Change delegation.
0: Then, we will be speaking with Hazami Barmada, the communication consultant to the Secretary-General's Envoy on Youth at the United Nations. She will be discussing her advocacy as well as her involvement with the Peace and Hope Project.
1: We bring you some upcoming community events to end 2014 and start the new year, and of course, some amazing music.
0: Now here's our music host, Brittany Sosi, with tonight's first song.
2: Hello, my name is Brittany Sosi, and I'm your music host for tonight. Our first song is Hamdulillah by The Narcissist, featuring Shadia Mansour. For those who don't know, The Narcissist is an Iraqi-Canadian journalist and rapper who does a lot of music on conflict, and Shadia Mansour, a British-Palestinian singer, is considered the first lady of Arabic hip-hop. Her lyrics are renowned for focusing on Middle Eastern politics. This collaboration, collaboration is amazing. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Here is hamdulillah.
3: For the soul's anguished love And the moment my brothers program these drums Alhamdulillah We put the truth to the test Proof that we bless students And this music at best to go
0: Rodrigo Rodriguez is a New Mexico native, organizer, and coordinator of SWAP's community food justice initiative called Project Feed the Hood.
1: From October 27th to November 6th, he was in Palestine as a part of the Grassroots International Travel for Change delegation to explore agriculture, food sovereignty, the occupation, and the parallels between Palestine and New Mexico.
0: Here's Generation Justice fellow Cristina Rodriguez with Rodrigo Rodriguez.
4: Hello, I'm Christina Rodriguez, and tonight I want to welcome Rodrigo Rodriguez to join us at Generation Justice.
5: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
4: To start off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do?
5: Sure. Um, My name is Rodrigo Rodriguez. I work with the Southwest Organizing Project. Um, SWAP was founded in 1980. It's a social justice organization that works to empower disenfranchised communities in the Southwest (coughs) to realize racial and economic justice our racial and gender equality and social and economic justice um i specifically work on an initiative called project feed the hood Uh, that's our food justice and food sovereignty initiative uh, that we started in 2009 we just wrapped up our fifth season at our community garden up in the southeast heights so project feed the hood we work um, through various outlets through our community garden through our school gardens through um, our workshops (coughs) uh, around food and seed sovereignty Um, We also work around food policy issues around trying to get healthier uh, and better local foods into the school lunches um, here in the district in Albuquerque and across the state.
4: Cool. Thank you for sharing that. Um, To help us understand your work with Project Feed the Hood and the Southwest Organizing Project, how did you connect to the Grassroots International Travel for Change?
5: Sure um swap has a long history of doing um, international solidarity work. Um, a lot of members of the organization have gone to Cuba over the years um, and now that Cuba has has started to normalize relations with the US under the Obama administration, um, it looks a little different than it did when swap was sending folks you know and when they would have where there was a travel ban in place are still in place actually so folks would have to go through Cuba or through Canada or through Mexico. Um, you know, folks from the organization have a long history of supporting um, grassroots struggles in other parts of the world. So Cuba, um, in Palestine, in Libya, in El Salvador, in Honduras, and other parts of the world. Um, so there's a long history there. And I feel like this is just a little bit of an extension of that. Um, obviously, this... I specifically work on food sovereignty issues Um, and so this delegation through Grassroots International uh, was organized specifically to go work in the West Bank um, and learn about some of the food sovereignty and food justice challenges um, and some of the work that folks are doing out there in the occupied West Bank. Um, Grassroots International works with um, grassroots movements across the world so they have partners in Haiti, in the West Bank, um, in Latin America. So I was able to get in um, as a part of the delegation through one of our sister organizations called the Grassroots Global Justice Alliance. GGJ is an organization that works to connect grassroots struggle across the world um, to challenge uh, forms of imperialism and capitalism. So SWAP has participated in GGJ for a, for a really long time. We've sent members to the World Social Forums um, that happened in Venezuela, in India, in Mumbai, um, and in, in Africa. We've also, we one of the anchor organizations for the U.S. Social Forum in 2007 in Atlanta and then again in 2010 in Detroit. Um, so it's all kind of the culmination of a lot of work that folks have done over the years to to really connect grassroots movements and really uplift the struggles of folks that are doing good work all over the world. So it's kind of an extension of that. Um, This opportunity came up, and like I said, it specifically was going to look at food sovereignty issues in the West Bank, um, which is an issue that's really dear to my heart. So I was really interested in going to connect with our brothers and sisters out in Palestine.
3: So
4: your delegation specifically went to the West Bank. So can you describe a little bit what your experience was?
5: Yeah. Um, so you, like I said, our, our specifically, we went to the West Bank to work on food sovereignty issues. Uh, so we participated in the Olive Harvest um, with a couple of different organizations. We, we worked with um, various kind of groups that, you know, were doing different sorts of farming, water catchment, things of that nature. Um, and also just a a kind of wider array of organizations that work with prisoners' rights issues, that work with um, human rights uh, violation documentation, a bunch of different stuff, but really kind of honing in on this idea of food sovereignty, of maintaining a land base, of maintaining a natural resource base. Um, So it was, you know, geographically, it's a beautiful, it's an amazing place. Um, It actually reminded me a lot of New Mexico. Um, kind of that high desert feel to it, big wide open skies, uh, lots of brown folks, lots of brown faces. Um, so you know, I think it's it's got it's got an interesting kind of people have preconceived notions of what it is. Um, so before I left, you know, I had a lot of folks in my ear telling me different things about what I should expect or what I could expect. Um, going over there, you know it was obviously a much different experience. Um, I was really kind of struck by the hospitality of folks. Um, you know, all across the West Bank, you know, everywhere we went, we were greeted with, you know, pots of tea and cookies and stories and laughter and people made us just feel so welcomed. Um, and it's, that's, that part was really kind of, I don't want to say surprising, um, you know, as people of color, as indigenous communities, we break bread with each other as a, a way of showing solidarity and showing love for one another, um. But just the way that people respond in the face of just like overwhelming oppression, Um, you know, the occupation, what we hear about here in the United States and the way that it actually looks, I think, are really kind of stark contrasts. Um, You know, you hear things about the occupation in alternative media sources. You don't hear anything about the occupation in in mainstream media sources. When you look at alternative media, you hear a lot of these stories about home demolitions, about, you know, these mass arrests that they do in the refugee camps, of mass arrests that they do in the villages, you know, the moving around of the Bedouin communities, all this other stuff that you kind of hear about or see. When you're actually in the West Bank, it's very tangible. It kind of hits you in the face, um, and you see, you know, since we've been back, you know, I've seen stories about some of the people that we were hanging out with, some of the villages. One of the villages that we stayed in um, is called Susia in in the South Hebron Hills, um, Susia is a village that lives in, ten- they live in caves and they live in tents um, because they're in a part of um, what they call Area C where they're not allowed to build anything. So every- once a year for the last three or four years, um, the occupation forces have come down and demolished Susia. Um, they fill in the caves, they kick people out, they demolish the tents. Um, and every year, you know, folks rebuild. So just in the month that I've been back, um, I've seen two news stories about the people in Susia, you know, who opened their homes to me. Uh, one of those stories was about their water tanks um, that were confiscated by the occupation forces because they hadn't been installed yet. So they kind of have folks kind of coming and going. Like, you're not allowed to install these tanks because they're illegal, but the, you're not allowed to have the tanks because they're not installed yet either. Um, so, you know, when I think that's, for me, that's the big part is kind of like having all of that actualized Um, in a way that's very fast moving Um, and so when we look at kind of New Mexico and our struggles here and struggles in other parts of the U.S. and even other parts of the global south um, and other oppressed communities you know and the way that you look at the way that oppression works um, and systems of oppression and it's just very different in the context of Israel-Palestine because of how fast moving the occupation is.
4: So as a Chicano from New Mexico, what similarities did you notice between us and Palestine?
5: Um, <clears throat> a lot. So there, you know, I think on a very surface level, um, you know, it's this place that's been colonized. Um, it's this place that's got this really intense history of colonization and land removal and cultural appropriation, um, and it's happened very fast. It happened very rapidly in Palestine. We're talking a pretty contemporary history, right, post-World War II. And you look at the history of New Mexico, it's a very long history of colonization, and there's multiple forms of colonization. Um, so when you kind of look at the the histories of both places, you know, they're, they're very intentional connections. You know, the, the Zionist um, movement and the way that it colonized Palestine, you know, looked at, other forms of colonization. It looked at the colonization of South Africa and the southern part of the African continent. They looked at what Cecil Rhodes did. Um, They looked at what they did to the Native Americans in the United States. Um, And they still look to those colonial systems. You know, so it's very intentional. Um, And I think that to me was kind of brought to the forefront. Um, I think another big piece that's kind of uh, like very clear is, is the history of like militarization in both places. Um, so you look at, you know, our biggest employers here in New Mexico are the military industrial complex and all the forces that come along with it, you know, the military bases, all the weapons manufacturing, all of the nuclear proliferation that happens here in, in New Mexico, you know, Northrop Grumman and Raytheon, all these huge multinational, multibillion dollar corporations um, that build their weapons here in New Mexico and then ship them to the West Bank to be tested out on the Palestinian people. So, you know, I think there's basic kind of surface level connections to be drawn there. But it's also, like I was saying, it's very deep around the histories of colonization, the way that people are removed from their land, some of the ethnic cleansing that's happened, some of the cultural appropriation that's happened. And just the way that systematically, you know, people of color, indigenous populations are kind of pushed to the margins um, in order to maintain this kind of colonist, colonizer, settler colonialism facade
4: how does this militarization and this occupation of Palestine have an impact on their food justice and their food sovereignty?
5: One of the things we heard kind of consistently from folks, there's a group that we were hanging out with um, in Ramallah called the Stop the Wall. Um, Stop the Wall is the grassroots movement to stop the apartheid wall. Um, They have this big mural, this big, beautiful mural in in their office of different sections of the fence. And it's got kind of occupation, helicopters, and it's this really huge mural. Um, and in quotes above the mural, it says, to exist is to resist. Um, and I think that is the crux of what I really have been taking away from this experience um, as an organizer, as a New Mexican, as a Chicano. Um, you know, the forces of colonization are, are really heavy. They're really well-funded. Um, They're very old. Um, you know, and just the, the sheer fact that the Chicano people, that indigenous communities, that the Palestinian people still exist, I think is a form of resistance. Um, and so when we started Project Feed the Hood, it was very much based around principles of food sovereignty and that, like, we have to be providing for our own folks. We have to be maintaining these lifeways, this land base, our natural resources, our water, our land, our air, in order to maintain our sovereignty, to maintain our cultural sovereignty, and also just to maintain our, our roots, to maintain root, to be rooted and to be powerful. Um, and I think that that's very evident in Palestine, you know, where every square inch of land is contentious. You know, every square inch of water is contentious. And that, to me, looks very much like New Mexico. And so when we talk um, at the Southwest Organizing Project about things like the Santolina development on the west side that wants to come in and, you know, suck all of our natural resources out in order to line the pockets of Barclays and these other outside multinational entities that really don't care about the sovereignty of the New Mexican people, the sovereignty of the indigenous people, or the Chicano people of the southwest, um, you know, I think it, it really gets personalized. Um, for me and then when we look kind of so the history of swap like i was saying is around environmental justice and swap in the 90s fought intel on their the pollution that they were doing on a lot of the tax breaks that they got Um, intel is one of the corporations that's the most heavily invested in the israeli occupation and so i think when we talk about you know how these forces of capitalism and colonization kind of come to a head, it generally happens in places like New Mexico, like in Palestine, you know, pe- around places that are uh, economically impoverished, where you know, they, corporations feel like they can get away with things that they might not get away with in other parts of the country, other parts of the world.
4: Wow, that's like really powerful and that's something that people should get to know. So what else do you want our listeners to take with them?
5: Um, I really, one of the things that was really striking for me um, being in the West Bank was talking to other Palestinian organizers, um, other folks who do work similar to what we do at the Southwest Organizing Project. You know, SWAP's mission is around bringing people together, empowering folks to take action, to take agency, and to make change in in policy and in cultural shifts that will affect their everyday lives. And so talking to folks who are trying to do similar things in Palestine, um, one of the things that was the most clear to me uh, is that Palestine doesn't need any more saviors. You know, I was told by some of the folks out there that in the city of Ramallah, which is a city of about 150,000, 200,000 people, there's over 2,000 NGOs, 2,000 nonprofits doing different kind of project-based work. What? What Palestine doesn't need is more people who are going to go to the West Bank to write their books, to write their studies. Palestine doesn't need more saviors. Palestine needs solidarity. Palestine needs people in their communities organizing to make a change. So I think for me, um, after hearing that kind of over and over and over again, um, I think that really sticks with me as a community organizer, as somebody who works in his community to build power. I think it's very important that we challenge within our own country, within our own communities, these ideas of who the Palestinian people are, about what the United States' role in international politics, in international homeland security, and this like terrorist industrial complex that they've created. Like, what are, what's our stake as Chicanos, as people in the Southwest, as people in Albuquerque? Like, how can we? organizing our own communities to challenge these ideas to ultimately make a change. So I think that for me is the biggest thing is like bringing it back in ways that people can find tangible, that can translate to people. It's obviously, it's a huge issue. It's a really complex issue. People feel really strongly about it on kind of both sides of the fence. Um, I had an email from a guy last week who was calling me a Nazi and, um, you know, and it's it's a very polarizing thing. And so I think it's a it's, it has to be like a process of education for, like, yourself and also in your community, you know, and challenging yourself to think differently about things, challenging your community to think differently about things.
4: Thank you so much, Rodrigo, for joining us in the studio today. I was really, really excited for this interview, so it was a pleasure to be able to talk with you.
5: Thank you guys for having me.
4: Yeah, thanks for coming and sharing your stories with us, and thank you for all the work that you do.
5: Thank you guys for having me, and thank you for your guys' time.
4: Now, back to our hosts. Last week, I had the opportunity to attend
0: Rodrigo's talk about his trip to Palestine that was held at SWAP. I thought his connection to New Mexico green chili was very interesting. It made me realize that olives are just as important to the economy in Palestine as green chili is to the New Mexico economy. It's also a spiritual importance. A lot of the olive farms have been passed down through several generations in the same families and they're representative of their culture and history. I think that's something that's really important to remember. Thank you for coming in and speaking with us, Rodrigo.
1: Yeah, I think it's really important and it's terrific what you are doing right here in New Mexico with Project Feed the Hood and also showing the connections with Palestine. Thank you, Rodrigo, for coming in and speaking with us. Thank you,
2: guys. Now back to our music host. This next song is called Salsa Salsa con Soul Food by Funky Aztecs featuring Tupac. It was chosen by Rodrigo. This song is a product of Tupac's effort to bring unity between black people and chicanos and ultimately the world.
1: From October 23rd through the 27th, Peace and Hope, a gift from the children of Syria to the world, appeared at the National Mall in Washington, D.C.,
0: This large canvas displays the stories of over 1,000 Syrian refugee children and youth. The exhibit aims at educating people about the children that have been displaced by over three years of conflict that has left millions of people in need of life-saving aid.
1: Hazami Barmada joins us now to talk a bit about this project and about the importance of human rights activism.
0: Here's Generation Justice's Bayan Jabber with Hazami Barmada.
3: Hey, guys, this is Bayan Jabber of Generation Justice, and I'm here with Hazami Benmeda, who is the communications consultant to the Secretary General's Envoy on Youth for the United Nations. Ms. Benmeda, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
6: Well, thank you so much uh, for having me. It's definitely an honor to be uh, speaking to uh, your audience, and and I applaud you guys on all the work that you're doing. Um, I am originally a Syrian-Palestinian living in the United States, um, and work a lot in this space of public affairs and communication as it really relates to inspiring and engaging um, your average citizen, governments, and businesses to, to care more about causes that impact them directly, but then also the international community. Um, so a lot of the work that I do is advocacy, um, it's program development, and it's also a public affairs campaigns that get really try to get to the heart of humanizing conflict, humanizing um, civil rights, humanizing race, and all the various issues that impact all of our lives.
3: So how did your activism start and why? What was your motivation? Um, I,
6: I guess at one point I just realized that I was increasingly frustrated by the things that were happening around me and felt that it was my moral obligation and my moral responsibility to speak up for injustice that I saw around me but more importantly, I realized that I had a very unique and privileged vantage point mm-hmm. of being able to see different communities, to travel expensively around the world, to experience different cultures. And the more I was doing that, the more I realized that that was a privilege. And um, I, I had to give back, even if it was raising awareness and empowering people to think differently about things. I realized that that in and of itself was a privilege. Um, So I just got more and more involved initially in creating grassroots programs Mm -hmm. uh, that resonated with me, so things that were really important to me, which at the time were Muslim American issues and Arab American issues, and really trying to work with the American public to get them to humanize the plight of billions of people around the world that very sadly, due to our media, get lumped into a monolithic category and title, oftentimes a very negative one. Um, and that just led me to realizing that that's what I wanted to do and pursue professionally through consulting um, work and really actually institutionalizing um, and working within different kind of parts for community and, and society to implement change that actually happened on a deeper level.
3: That's very inspiring to hear. So tell me about the Peace and Hope Project. What are the objectives or goals of the project?
6: So Peace and Hope is a arts canvas that was painted on by over a 1,000 children from the Batari refugee camp in Jordan. Um, and obviously, Syria is in an ongoing conflict. It's going—March will be the fourth year anniversary of the conflict that's happening in Syria, which started as a um, revolution uh, of so the people demanding dignity and freedom and justice and liberty, the very things that we all get to enjoy here in the U.S. and take for granted very often. Um, Very unfortunately, the conflict has turned into a very complex issue, which has left millions of people in need of humanitarian aid. Um, More than half the population is currently dependent on aid, on life-saving aid. Uh, And you have about 1.3 million um, children that are refugees and uh, living in neighboring countries and displaced. So with a conflict of that magnitude, oftentimes what we hear in the media about Syria is tied into religious extremism and conflict. Um, and what that's doing is it's creating a fear community around uh, what people can do to help and people feel helpless and really confused as to how to be involved, where to be involved, where their money's actually going, who needs help the most, simply due to the fact that it has also not only become a conflict on the ground, but it is also a digital conflict where opinions and online voices and videos and footage and material is being manipulated um, it's being used to justify violence for one side or the other and repression. So ultimately, who's losing is the children and women. And if you look at the community, when you have more than 75% of the refugees are women and kids, and more than 50% are children of the refugee communities, that's the entire generation of leaders and the future of the country is displaced. And that's a huge lost generation. And what we aim to do with the canvas, which was actually created by a Syrian actor named Nawar Bulbul, ultimately we aim to utilize that canvas as a way to humanize the plight of the children themselves. It's a way for them to share their own story to a global community about their struggles, their aspirations, their hopes, their dreams, but also their pain and their mm. feelings of sadness and sorrow and helplessness, which is all very, very vividly clear in their own paintings and their own depictions without us interpreting them for them, which I feel is extremely, extremely important. So around the canvas itself, we are building programming that aims to create dialogue in the international community about children in conflict, about the mental support that is needed for children in conflict, and more importantly, hopefully, to advocate and raise funds to support education um, and initiatives that aim to do with their development and growth.
3: That's awesome, because I know that, when we got and looked at the artwork from Palestinian children provided by Mecca from Gaza after Cast Lead my family and I immediately felt a tears looking at the artwork thinking about what these children are going through the fears that they have it was just it was devastating and it really tore our hearts in pieces and so for you how did the artwork brought to you by children in Syrian refugee camps in Jordan affect you personally and affect your work
6: i think seeing the children For me and being able to engage with them on a very personal level in a very kind of perverted way helps inspire you to keep going so it's like you're there to help them and and, but in reality you help yourself in so many ways by allowing yourself to be grounded in kind of your ability to not only serve and realizing that the ability to serve is a privilege in and of itself
2: the Mm -hmm. fact that
6: I have the luxury to be able to help and to be able to travel to a refugee camp and I have the financial means to do so is a very humbling realization when you're really sitting there looking at children that do see you as an outlet of hope. Um, I think, you know, it's always so amazing to see children that have lost so much, yet they're so full of just innocence and childhood and and giggles and laughter. And um, I think to me, that's one of the most inspiring uh, reasons that I continue to go back to these um, conflict zones and for refugee camps in, in a way it really helps me enable uh, myself to continue doing what I'm doing and realizing that one smile and one small thing that we might not see the value of might have a ripple effect in yeah. the life of one of those children uh, which is something that we cannot put a, any type of monetary tag onto.
3: Definitely. So what do you hope this project accomplishes?
6: Um, for me, I think the, the ultimate goal of this project is to get people to care, mm-hmm. um, to get people to realize that the plight of children globally, not just in Syria, is something that we all should care about. We all were children. We all potentially have children. We are related to children. And I think we, if you're able to kind of look at a child not based on their religion or their ethnic or geographic kind of confines, but rather looking at them as individuals and their potential, who they can be and who they are currently, we will have a more humanized world. Mm-hmm.
3: So what message do you hope to give to Americans and the world ultimately about the situation in Syria?
6: I think uh, the main message that I hope the international community understands is that we, we need to stop um, looking at Syria and what's happening with Syrians um, as war We Mm -hmm. need to ultimately look at ways that we as an international community have an obligation to serve and to give and to help and to assist.
0: Um,
6: I think when we look at ISIS, and and that's oftentimes people hear Syria, they hear ISIS, Syria is a beautiful country with a rich, amazing, beautiful history that helped define a lot of what we are today, including kind of arithmetics and uh, a lot of, you know, very ancient civilizations that stem from that part of the world and religions and everything, you know, that we – we don't really associate with that part of the world. So a big part of, of my message to Americans is that we need to invest into these children. We need to look past the fear. We need to look past the, the distrust. We need to stop spinning narratives that are exciting for the media and rather look at what we can and should be doing to support the people in need right now that should and could be empowered to rebuild their own futures.
3: Yeah, change the narrative. Um, now that the project has been displayed on the National Mall, what's next for the project?
6: So there's um, a lot of hope and talk to take the project to different parts of the country and also internationally. Um, The next step would be to try to um, set it up in New York City and then hopefully London is next on the agenda and then from there the world is our oyster. We really hope it will go large, uh, very far and wide and it will largely impact people. The canvas is huge so Mm -hmm. we're really looking at setting it up in public places that can be most accessible and also very symbolic. So the idea of setting it up on the National Mall is very iconic because it is the very place that MLK gave his his talk. It was very famous I Have a Dream speech. It's the very place that the inauguration of the U.S. president happens. And so it's a very iconic and powerful symbolic place, and that's what we really hope to be able to do in different countries around the world to make sure that the kids' stories are being mainstreamed and they're not just shared Um, among a few and preach to the choir of the people who do care. We're trying to get to your average person who would not be the person that would show up in a museum to see children's paintings. Um, So that's ultimately the goal.
3: Well, I really hope that you guys reach this goal. Is there anything else you'd like to add?
6: I think, you know, based on the demographic of your audience, I think every single person here can play a role in whatever cause they care about with social media and with Um, Our abilities to connect with others so easily and via technology, Uh, there's so much that everyone can do. And if you don't have the means to do it, even just simply dedicating a post to raise awareness among your community about issues that they may not be aware of is something that is an action item people can take. Um, Finding or identifying ways that you can participate in fun activities that can serve as fundraisers like races or climbs or things like swimming contests or whatever else it may be. I mean, there's always ways that we can merge our own things that we do and we enjoy with being able to serve others and not look at it as something that is a chore that we have to do on the side or dedicate specific time to. But serving and being uh, a good good person and a humanitarian is a way of life.
3: Thank you, Hazami, for giving us your time and talking to us about this wonderful project. Thank you. If you guys would like to learn more about this project, Go to Barmada, B-A-R-M-A-D-A, consulting.com.
0: Thank you, Hazami Barmada, for speaking with us about the Peace and Hope Project and reminding us of the tools that we can use to spread awareness about the
1: project. Oftentimes, mainstream media tends to focus solely on the war and forgetting that so many lives have been affected, especially children's.
0: I didn't realize that the number of displaced children was so large. I can't help but think about my own family and how hard it would be to be separated from my sisters after years of growing up with them.
1: You're right, Maya. It's hard to think that such things are happening to families like ours. If you want to find out more, head over to org. Now, we'll go back to Brittany with some more music.
2: We Are Here by Alicia Keys was chosen was chosen by Hazi, Hazami Bermada. This song was inspired by Alicia Keys' desire to bring change and spread compassion throughout the globe. Here is We Are Here.
3: Right now it don't make sense. Let's talk about Chi-town.
0: It's about time we share with you some important community events
1: here's your calendar hosts alma and danny hey alma don't you just love new mexico
7: <laughs> yeah but wait wait, hold up danny before you get too excited let's introduce calendar
8: oh yeah hey everyone welcome to this week's lovely edition of the super fantastic amazing calendar i'm your calendar host danny kessner
7: and i'm your other calendar host alma olavaria gallegos
8: So back to what I was saying before you so rudely interrupted (laughs) me. New Mexico, don't you just love it?
7: Yes, I love it so much. It's so beautiful.
8: (laughs) Totally, bro. And so does Wes (laughs) Naiman, a New Mexican photographer who visited 20 cities in 20 days to capture 500 portraits and the accompanying stories of those people who make our beloved state like no other place in the world.
7: Oh, wait, yeah, I've actually heard about that. That's called um, We Are New Mexico Portraits and Profiles, right? Where is it again?
8: It will be at the Harwood Art Center on 1114 7th Street, Northwest.
7: Oh, the Harwood. I love the art there. Anyways, the exhibit will be on January 9th, 2015. To welcome in the new year.
8: For more awesome information about the exhibit, visit harwoodartcenter.org.
7: Also at the Harvard during the same time, there will be an exhibit called *E Unablist Plurum*, a Yoran TV production.
8: This exhibit offers a multimedia fine art and entertainment experience focused on varying cultural attitudes in regards to environment, both natural and digital, that inform social beliefs and infrastructure.
7: The artwork presents perspectives on mass media, wilderness, city life and The Cosmos, and explores how they relate to social systems, both organic and contrived.
8: And those two exhibits will be running until January 29th, so be sure to get your butt over there in time.
7: (laughs) Speaking of art, Danny, New Mexico's Safe Schools Initiative is partnering with Warehouse 508 to have a youth-led discussion about their experiences with bullying to inspire various works of art.
8: That's so cool of them.
7: Yep. And get this... The art made there will be displayed and performed at New Mexico Legislator this upcoming legislative session.
8: And when will that be, Nowhere of All Things?
7: (laughs) That'll be Saturday, January 10th, ye of little knowledge.
8: Hey, no bullying. The hosts of this event would be really mad at you. Speaking of the hosts, they are Equality New Mexico and the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico.
7: To go along with this theme of art, let's talk about some of the performance art that's coming up soon.
8: Sounds good, Alma. First off, we have Dan Guerrero's play called Gaytino, which is a part of the Latino Theater Festival Siembra.
7: Yeah, it's about a gay Chicano who moves from the back of the bus to the front of American pop culture. In this autobiographical play, Dan Guerrero travels through decades of Mexican-American history and the gay experience from a unique personal perspective in his riveting solo show.
8: Well said, Alma. Now, if you lovely people want to see this show, it will be at the National Hispanic Cultural Center on January 23rd and 24th of next year. For more super informative information, visit (laughs) nhccnm.org.
7: Wait, did you say that's at the National Hispanic Cultural Center? That's so cool, because there's another awesomely splendid show that is supposed to be happening there pretty soon. It's called Antigona en la Frontera,
8: Oh yeah, that's the one based off the classical Greek play Antigone, right?
7: Yep, exactly. Except this one transposes the play into the context of the U.S.-Mexican border.
8: Sounds cool, Alma. And if you think so, too, the play will be next year on January, 20th, on January 16th.
7: Oh my gosh, next year's coming so fast. But before the end of the year, we still have a chance to squeeze in a couple more events, for example, on December 27th, there will be a benefit concert for Doctors Without Borders called Beat Ebola. <laughs> Get it? Like beat, like the music.
8: Mind blown, Alma. <laughs> but yeah, and a bunch of amazing artists will be there like Daniel Ward, Mensah Sakpur, Rujeka Sara, and others playing from playing music from around the world.
7: It will be hosted by Rhythm Without Borders, and all proceeds will go to Doctors Without Borders in West Africa.
8: Once again, beautiful people, this will be on December 27th at 7.30 p.m. at the Albuquerque Center for Spiritual Living on 2801 Louisiana Boulevard Northeast.
7: And we have one last event to introduce to you guys tonight, and it's going to be Slammin'.
8: Why is that, Alma?
7: Because this upcoming Saturday, December 27th, at 6 p.m., there's going to be the Outspoken Queer Poetry Slam and open mic at Winning's Coffee on Harvard.
8: The slam is open to self-identified lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and queer-questioning poets and will be under the usual slam rules.
7: That means three minutes per poem with a ten-second grace period,
8: no props, no music, and no costumes allowed.
7: The audience judges will rate on a one-to-ten scale...
8: The top three poets will earn a spot to compete in the Outspoken Championship Slam in June.
7: And all poets will earn points towards competing in the ABQ Slam City Championship. So please show up to perform or even just to support the Queer Slam community.
8: Again, that will be this Saturday, December 27th at 6 p.m.
7: Uh, For more information, email OutspokenQueerPoetry at gmail.com or join the Outspoken Facebook page.
8: And now comes the sad time when we have no more events to talk about and must end the calendar.
7: No, it's especially sad because this is the last calendar of the year. No! (laughs) Yeah, that basically sums up how I'm feeling. But don't worry, everyone. We will be back next year with so many, many more events. But until then, I'm the last calendar host of 2014 Alma Olavaria Gallegos.
8: And I'm your other last calendar host of the year, Danny Kessner. Oh, and by the way, guys, the music playing during during calendar was a sky full of stars by Coldplay.
7: I hope you all have a nice rest of the year. See See you later, later, bro.
2: Sham MC is a Syrian rapper and activist. He uses English in some of his songs so that he can share the conflict in Syria with Western culture. His song, Syria Will Never Die, discusses the everyday struggle the people of Syria go through. Here is Sham MC's Syria Will Never Die.
1: We have reached the end of our show tonight. Thank you all for joining us this evening.
0: Thank you, Rodrigo Rodriguez, for taking the time to speak with us and for all the work that you've done with Project Feed the Hood and for teaching us more about Palestine.
1: We would also like to thank Hazami Barmada for talking with us and for all the work you've done with the Peace and Hope Project.
0: Special thanks to Christina Rodriguez and Bayan Jabber for conducting tonight's interviews.
1: Thank you to Chantel Trujillo for producing and editing tonight's show.
0: Huge thanks to our calendar host this evening, Alma Olavaria Gallegos and Danny Kestner.
1: We would also like to thank Brittany Sosi for the amazing music selection and for engineering this evening.
0: Production assistance came from George Luna Peña, Melissa Harris, Kamaria Umi, and Roberta Rael.
1: Much appreciation to all of our youth media makers here at Generation Justice. We couldn't do what we do without you.
0: Stay connected with us. Check out our website, generationjustice.org, where you can listen to all of our past shows, see music playlists, read our blogs, watch videos, and much, much more. Also, our podcasts are now available on iTunes. Be sure to subscribe.
1: We're also active on social media, so please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram.
0: Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the McCune Foundation and, of course, all of you, who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. I'm your host, Maya Quinones.
1: And I'm your co-host, Zach Milliken. We'll end the show with a few more songs, then following us on KUNM, is Spoken Word.
0: See you next Sunday at 7 o'clock.
1: Happy holidays. Now back to our music host.
2: For our closing music, we will hear the culmination by the various artists involved in beats, rhymes, and relief. I love this song and the fact that it features different artists who all creatively tell their stories and voice their opinions. Here is the culmination.
1: I'll be like Nymph Nip, young man child. Check this out. Giving so you game or you don't have to figure it out. First off, it's about that. Your spirit, your body, your money is your biggest challenge. Fresh to death and mannish, but not before the, the rent and bills is managed. Coldest damage standards control. Now about keeping that proper glow on your soul. Keep it real with yourself. Most of all, and them fake dudes around
5: you... As-